Welcome to MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the truth behind medical research with unbiased, evidence-proven facts, powered by Encore Research Group. Vax to the future. Vax standing for vaccines. And then this is um, our own version, not the trademark version, of the DeLorean, showing you that this is a, now not a time machine, but a way to get more time in your life due to vaccines, right? And so there's a lot of controversy about vaccines, which is really interesting from my perspective, because there wasn't much controversy in the past, for whatever reason, because the, the politics of our country, this has become more and more, uh, more and more of an issue. So let me ask you a simple question. Who here is afraid of vaccines? To be honest. Who's not afraid of vaccines? Okay. And who is uh, not sure? Fair enough. All right, so it so looks like we have uh, an audience that already believes in it. Not everybody's like that. So, so I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to present some information. And I'll, let me ask you a question. Who has a friend or a family member or somebody who's afraid of vaccines? Okay, everybody. Okay. So sometimes you get into these discussions and it gets political or it gets, you know, it gets ugly, quite frankly, but it should be. This is about science. And again, our goal here is for everybody to live a wonderful life, to live a life that is as long as possible, free of infections as possible, with the fewest side effects from the drugs and, and interventions that we provide for you. But not everybody necessarily believes that because we have a big trust issue in this country from a number of different perspectives. So what I'm going to show you is all just scientific data. It's not political at all. But it's hopefully for you to help other people who may have a trust issue come and learn more about this. It's very, very important that we teach everybody what's true and what's not true, including people who are skeptical. Because in my experience with the skeptical people, they also want to know the truth. They also want to know the truth, but they're worried about what they can trust. And that's why we have this whole MedEvidence platform, is so that we talk about the truth. When we talk about the truth, it's important to talk about what you know, and also what you don't know. And that's what happens in a lot in the country now, is that people don't say what they don't know. They assume that they know something, and any time they don't have a good answer for a question, they make something up, because they've been told that if you don't say something, then people won't trust you. But it's actually the opposite. People don't trust people that just make stuff up. They trust people that say, I don't know. And we have to figure it out together. Right? All right. So we're on the same page. OK, so what is a virus? We're going to start with that concept. So one of the best definitions is uh, from this, uh, this group of scientists who's called Virus is simply a piece of bad news wrapped up in a protein. Okay? And so what's interesting is that a virus is the simplest of living things. In fact, some people say they're not even sure if a virus is a living thing. Because all a virus does is recreates itself. It does nothing more than recreate itself. And it's so simple that it doesn't even have the cellular mechanism to do it on its own. A bacteria is a little bit more complex, and a bacteria can reproduce itself without having a host, without anybody else. A virus needs another tissue 
in order to do its job of reproducing itself. It can't reproduce itself by itself. If you put a virus on the floor here, it would all die. If you put a bacteria on the floor here, it would reproduce itself. So a virus needs you, or me, or an animal, or a cell to reproduce itself. So this is one of the great ironies. A lot of people don't trust vaccines because they tell me, oh, I don't want to put RNA or DNA in my body. That sounds very dangerous. That sounds very, very risky. What does a virus do? Its only job is to put RNA and DNA in your, in your body. So if you're worried about genetic material in your body, you should be really worried about viruses. Because that's all it does. And there's a reason to be worried about that, because there's some theories that have some pretty good data that viruses are responsible for cancer and aging. And that's because our immune system is good, but it's not perfect. And viruses do get into our body and do put its nuclear material in our body. And in fact, our cells have ways of protecting themselves against viruses that already got into our body. So again, if you're worried about having genetic material in your body, or your friends are, tell them, well, if you're worried about RNA or DNA injections or therapeutics, you should be really worried about viruses. What I'll also show you is that the stu stuff that we're studying that involves RNA and DNA treatments is not a whole virus. It's not a whole organism. We are so good now that we just give a little piece of RNA that isn't for the whole virus, but it's just a piece that says, this, we want you to recognize this little tip of the virus. Not the whole one. So, and I'm going to show you this, but the old school vaccines, we would take a virus, we would kill it, and then we would inject it into people. You know, obviously there was other steps, but that was basically the concept. Again, a whole virus, kill it, you put it into people, and then the immune system would know that that's the bad guy. Okay? And uh, nowadays, we don't have to do that. All we do is we say, okay, we know how that tip is made, that spike protein. We don't have to do the whole spike protein, just the tip of it. And we're going to teach your body that when you see that guy, then you fight this whole virus. Now, how cool is that? Like, I, this is the only thing I can say. This is the coolest thing in the world, is that technology has gotten to that point. But people don't understand that. So we all have to help people outside there understand that. Okay. All right, next slide. Once viruses get into your system, bad things happen. Let me get out of the way. this. Viruses, they will replicate themselves, reproduce, at an incredibly fast rate. That's why we get sick and that, that illness accelerates itself. You may have a little bit of sniffle and you say, okay, well, it's not that bad. And then 12 hours later, you can't get out of bed. And another 12 hours later, you need to go to the emergency room because you can barely breathe. That's because of how fast these viruses can replicate once they get going. And they also mutate. They change. Mutation means change. So they change their genetic material as they're replicating, which makes it harder for your immune system to keep up with it. So one of the ways viruses cause a lot of problems is because they get in there, your immune system is getting revved up, and then they change, so the immune system has to regroup. And so that's the only reason that we want to get the viruses at the very early stages. We want your immune system to be ready. So again, as I mentioned before, Viruses really can't do anything by themselves. They require a host. They require cells from usually a human. They, they can actually infect plant cells also. But for the most part, the viruses that we deal with are infecting human cells or animal cells. So they, they need that in order for us, in order for them to do their damage. And again, as I mentioned, their only job is all they do. They do nothing else. 
They don't eat, they don't drink, they don't do anything other than try to inject their nuclear material into a human cell or an animal cell. And some viruses have DNA and some viruses have RNA. I don't want to get too technical here, but just to remind you from high school biology, is DNA has two strands and RNA has one strand. So some viruses are double-stranded DNA viruses, some are single-stranded RNA viruses. The flu and COVID are both RNA viruses with eight genes. That's it, eight genes. And there are other viruses out there, like smallpox, that are much more complicated that are DNA viruses. But we've, we've been able to get rid of smallpox, and hopefully we'll do the same for COVID and flu. That was... Back to the future, just thinking. But I think we went one too far. Okay. All right, there we go. So, how do you become immune to a virus? Well, there's basically two ways. You can read here that one, the way that most people get immune to a virus is you get the disease, you get sick, you hopefully recover, and if you recover, then your immune system recognizes the bad guy, and your immune system can now protect you against the next time. Now, that usually works, but I'll tell you where maybe it doesn't work perfectly. So, let's say that um, you had the measles. Okay, that's a virus. Your body, you get sick, you usually get it as a kid, you don't get too ill, you get a rash and you get some fever and chills and, and then your, body, your immune system's ready. And your immune system has a memory and the next time you're exposed to measles, you won't get sick because your immune system's ready and it won't let the virus get into your cells. There are viruses though that when we fight them, they get into our cells in a place where our immune system can't get at them. So a good example of that are herpes viruses like chickenpox. Uh, there are other herpes viruses, but chickenpox is a good example, is that you get sick, your immune system fights it off, it hides in your neurological cells, right? And then what happens 50 years down the road when you have chickenpox? Does everybody know what you get? Shingles. You guys are smart, okay. So that's an example of a virus that never actually completely goes away, but it's dormant in one of our cells, okay? So that's one of the reasons why we want to avoid the virus to get there in the first place, so there's no sanctuary for that virus to stick with us. Okay, and um, this talks about the other way of becoming immune to viruses, which I believe is the better way, which is get a vaccine. So when you take a vaccine, especially the new vaccines, you're, get, you're not getting a live virus anymore. You're getting a signal to the immune system that will protect you from getting infected in the first place. So there will be no chicken pox in your, eventually, we don't have uh, this type of technology yet for chicken pox, but we will soon. When you give uh, a chicken pox vaccine in the future, it will prevent that primary infection. But we do have that technology for RSV, presensitial virus. We now are developing it for influenza, and of course we have it for COVID. And what happened last month to substantiate how important this technology is. Does anybody know? Other than Sharon? <laughs> do you have a slide on that? Uh, you do. Okay, we'll get to it then. I'll, I'll leave a question. Something happened uh, this past month that substantiates the importance of the technology that we're using in the COVID vaccines. And uh, you guys think about it. When that slide comes up, we'll see if you figured it out. Do you remember the day? I remember within, uh, it was Monday, 
I could figure it out. October 2nd. <laughs> okay. I remember it was a Monday because I cabled an interview, and then literally the next thing I heard was uh, this announcement, and I would have, of course, mentioned it during my interview had I known about it 30 minutes earlier. Okay. All right, so this is, uh, this is big. Uh, yes? What's the controversy now about the people in their 70s and older taking the COVID vaccine and it's creating heart problems for them? Okay, we're going to definitely address that, but I don't think it's a controversy. I think there's misconceptions, and actually the concern is actually younger people. So with the COVID vaccine, I'll just give the, the punchline, is as you get older, you become at higher risk. And the risk-benefit for a COVID vaccine as you get older is very clear-cut. There's no question whatsoever. In younger people, they don't get as sick from COVID. So in younger people, there may be a discussion about whether or not a possible side effect is more important than the benefits of the vaccine. But it, when you're seven years old, there's no controversy. Older, the controversy would be in a 20-year-old, not a seven-year-old. Okay, so getting to this, I'm going to move to this side. Um, this is how your body works, and this is a little bit of a scientific graph, but I'm going to walk you through it. So when you get infected, and the zero is the time frame of infection, first there's a period where you're asymptomatic. And for viruses, it can be anywhere between zero and five days. For COVID and the flu, it's typically two days on average. It can be a little bit longer, a little bit shorter. And, but uh, as this is happening, the virus is building up in your system, and then it's presenting its antigens, its proteins, to your immune system, and its nuclear material. So the first thing that happens is that your body responds with something that's called IgM, which is an antibody. And so IgM is a very large, complicated antibody that takes the first effort to go after the, uh, the, the virus. And if you remember, remember when we were giving uh, antibody infusions during COVID before we had vaccines? That's what they were doing. They were taking what's called convalescent plasma, which is basically the non-cellular part of your blood, the, not, the part that's not red, and giving it to people because it had this IgM in it. And so it, it worked. It's, a, it's not the best thing, but it, it worked. But actually, the more important thing is what's called IgG. And IgG is a much more numerous antibody. It's, it's a smaller, more nimble molecule, and it can get to the, the action more quickly. But that takes a little while for your body to rub that up. It starts getting, it says 14 days here. It takes about 10 days, or, and, you know, between 10 and 14 days before it really gets revved up. But this also lasts for a long time. So we know that after COVID infection, you have high levels of IgG against COVID in your body for at least six months. So people have definitely had, who's had COVID here? And who's had COVID more than once? Okay, so it's almost always more than six months after. And the reason it's more than six months after is because the IgG is starting to decrease. And typically the second time you get it, it's a slightly different strain the first time and you need the higher IgG levels to prevent you from getting reinfected with something that is a little bit different than the original infection, okay? So this is the way your immune system works. And then the other part of the immune system, which is not listed here, is what's called cellular immunity. These are antibodies made by something called B cells. The cellular immunity is something called a T cell, and that has the memory. So that, that's gonna be the guy that looks around and sees something that it doesn't like, and it, it, it tries to eat it, and then once it eats it, it's, oh, okay, we know what this is, and then it sends a signal to make more of the, of the B cells and to send out those antibodies. 
so the, your immune system is, is fascinating, and it's fabulous, and it goes both from a cellular immunity standpoint, where cells that actually do some of the dirty work, and what's called the antibody-mediated immunity system, which is the B cells. Okay, does that make sense? So now we're getting really scientific. I'm very proud of the team for putting together these really scientific slides. <coughs> these are so, all surprise to him. <laughs> yeah. Okay, go back. No. Is this artificial intelligence trying to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, so this is the way an antibody looks. All antibodies look like this. It's a common structure. And all the blue stuff is just the structural components of it. It's not the action components of it. The green stuff is the action component of it. And the green stuff is what's different for each different virus. So the way your body makes it is that most of it is a structural component that's the same for all different viruses, and the green is different from the different viruses. And this is the specificity. That's how your antibodies know what to go after. And as I said, all you need is a little piece of the spike protein. Well, the antibodies know that that particular piece of the spike protein is particular for the Omicron strain of COVID, uh, Omicron H2N3, or whatever the number may be at the time, and that's how specific it gets. And that's all coded in the tips of these antibodies. And so I mentioned IgG and IgM. This is IgG. IgM has five of these guys all together that are all surrounding um, their, their, a centerpiece. So everybody has a little bit of a different structure, but this is the main structural component, the unit. And then over here, this gets a little, a little bit more complicated, but the, the take-home message is that the antibodies can work in different ways. And this is a cell. The red is a receptor. The concept of receptor, does, if everybody understands that, that's the part of the cell that takes in different molecules or recognizes different molecules. So on the surface of your cell, you have these little interesting components. It doesn't quite look like that, but it sort of looks, looks like that which can touch other things and say, okay, I recognize this, I'm going to bring it in. I don't recognize this, I'm going to throw it away. And so the, uh, the antibody can work by blocking the receptor or can work by blocking the bad protein, either way. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. And then um, it also can hit the cell directly and cause some activation of an effect. So interestingly, uh, the, the IgG will hit other immune cells and get them to work. So IgG not only goes after the, the virus, but also is a recruiter for other cells in your body to also fight the virus. So it's kind of like the Paul Revere of cells. Mm -hmm. the, the, the viruses are coming, the viruses are coming. Okay? And then this gets a little bit more complicated, but an antibody can actually send a signal that this cell is so sick that you just got to kill it to, get, to, to control the damage. I'm not going to talk about that. It's a little, that'll be the next lesson. Okay, so what is a, a vaccine? All right, so we have two definitions. So who, who has used chat GPT here? Okay, and who, who has heard of chat, chat GPT? Okay, who has not heard of it? Okay, so this is a, chat GPT is a, it's a product that Microsoft Corporation has put together that's using artificial intelligence. And um, you have a personal relationship with uh, Roger. Roger? Yes, okay. How's it going? Great. Is, you guys are on good terms? Does he take you out for dinner on Friday nights? No. He's cheap. He is. All right. He just provides information. Okay. All right. So, so Sharon said, okay, well, 
We're gonna we're gonna compare the doctor with uh, artificial intelligence, and you tell me which one you like better. Okay. So the ChatGPT definition is here. A vaccine is a biological preparation that provides active acquired immunity to a particular disease. It typically consists of a weakened, killed, or parts of the disease-causing microorganisms, such as a virus or bacteria, or a synthetic substance that resembles a part of the microorganism. When administered to a person, a vaccine stimulates the immune system to recognize and remember the pathogen without causing the disease itself. The immune system responds by producing antibodies and memory cells, which are capable of quickly recognizing and finding the actual pathogen if the person is exposed to it in the future. This helps prevent or lessen the severity of the disease, making vaccines a powerful tool in the prevention and spread of infectious disease, protecting public health. Vaccines have been instrumental in reducing the incidence of many serious illnesses and been critical in controlling and eradicating certain diseases throughout history. Okay, so that's the that's Roger's version, and that's basically what I've been telling you for the last 15 minutes. So I don't disagree with that, but this is my version, Dr. Corner. A vaccine is a product that prepares our immune system to fight the bad guys. Okay, so which is a better definition? <laughs> All right. Well, and again, and that's the thing is that you have to take this information and make it, you know, approachable to people. And that's really what a vaccine does: is that it prepares our bodies to fight the bad guys. All right. So this is. So I, you know, I'm not. I, you know, I, I love science and technology, so I'm not dismissing artificial intelligence or Roger, except that it is the gown in front of things. He has a tendency to hallucinate. He does. And that's actually a huge problem. Yes. It's a huge problem, which is why you don't want to take you don't want to take out in front of things. But anyway, um, so but technology has been amazing. So especially medical technology, information technology uh, has been amazing in lots of places. Not so much in healthcare. It's interesting. Information technology has been very uneven in healthcare, but the science of basic science has been amazing. So I'll just give you an example. Do you remember uh, in 1996 there was this big scare about the bird flu? Yeah. Okay. So they, they they had the big scare about the bird flu. Everybody was getting really really nervous. And you know how long it took to create a vaccine? It took. You can say it right here. 11 years. So it was identified in 1996. We didn't have a vaccine in 2007. Wow. 11 years. 11 years. Okay. Uh, and then there was other vaccines that were made. So we had uh, H1N1 swine flu that was identified in 2009. And we had a vaccine available in a couple months. You know why that was? Because we already had the vaccine. Because we had this, we had H1N1 30, 40 years ago. Remember? During the 70s, Joel Ford got out there and said that we have the swine flu coming and we have to uh, prepare everybody with vaccines. And it was a big disaster because they didn't have a bad flu season that year. Remember that? Who's old enough to remember that? Okay, yeah, so that was when you know, I, was a, I was in junior high school. It was a while ago. But uh, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a debacle, actually, because they're really worried about the swine flu. They made a vaccine that turned out to be not a great vaccine. But the good news is that we had a vaccine ready when it came back. Yes, question? And, um, Hong Kong flu, that was an H1N1 too, wasn't it? Yeah, that was even earlier than that. That was 1968. I got that. Yeah, that was nasty, yeah. It, yeah. Almost, it almost did me in, but I was 15. Yeah, yeah. That was, it, you know, that was, you know, that was actually <clears throat> about as bad as COVID in terms of the impact on society. But our society was very different then. So even though that was incredibly nasty flu, uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans died from it. 
but it didn't stop the country the way uh, COVID stopped it because the you know our politics are different, our whole yeah. perspectives are different. Um, the <coughs> Spanish flu was was back in 1918. That was actually five to ten times worse than COVID. Five to ten times worse than COVID in terms of its impact. Are and they all the Are they all H1N1s? No, not necessarily. The, the ones that I mentioned are, but not 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 necessarily. And all H1N1s, are, they can be slightly different also. They, they can have some uh, genetic variability. But to your point, and the point I'm trying to make here, uh -huh. is that if you happen to get lucky, and the, and the virus that comes out is something that you've already dealt with, you'll have a vaccine. But if, if it's a new virus, you won't be so lucky. Okay. okay. So that's the point of this. Uh, MERS came out. MERS is very similar to, um, to COVID. That's a coronavirus. And uh, there was a lot of concern about that. This is going to be, you know, uh, this is called Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, and for whatever reason, it didn't affect that many people. Uh, about 8,000 people died, and then people were isolated and, and didn't spread as easily as some of the others. So we never developed a vaccine. Uh, and then you see these other. There's another avian flu that was. This is H7N9 to your answer question. So that was 2013, 2017, and they. By the time they were going to get ready for a vaccine, it was not an issue anymore. We weren't finding any more of that virus. So you can see that there's um, you know, all kinds of uh, timelines. <coughs> Ebola could be the worst virus out there. There's a 90% mortality rate for people infected with Ebola. It took five years to develop a vaccine, so we have a vaccine for that. So uh, you can see that the typical time frame is years. Okay? So how long did it take to go from identifying COVID-19 to having an approved product? <coughs> Oh, yes. Less of a year. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, vir the genetic material for the virus was identified in January of, uh, January of 2020. Um, the phase one studies were done in May of 2020. We participated in the phase three studies for Pfizer, Moderna, and Novavax starting in July of 2020. And if you remember, it was approved one week after the election. <laughs> and uh, President Trump wanted it before the election, but that didn't happen. Was, the, the first vaccine, uh, was, it was Pfizer and then Moderna, uh, one day after the other, was uh, one, it was in the early November. So you went actually from identifying the virus to an approved vaccine in about 10 and a half months. And now, the same thing happened, we can do it in about four or five months. Because, you know, we learned from each thing. That's incredible. Yeah, it's just incredible. It's, really, it's, it's just absolutely incredible. And these are safer vaccines because they're very specific to the target because of the messenger RNA technology. So that's pretty cool. Okay. All right. So this is, this is actually my favorite slide of the whole presentation. Who's here heard of uh, Nesimus? Okay. All right. Um, so it's interesting. Um, when I talk, to, I, I have a lot of patients, and, and you guys are, you know, you're here, you're sort of a selected sample, you're biased, uh, obviously very intelligent, coming in, <laughs> you are, you really are, but not everybody's like that. And so there, you know, there, there are several groups out there that are very, very skeptical about it, and it's not everybody in the group, Again, this, it, it's just a predilection. So it's interesting that uh, people who consider themselves evangelical, are very skeptical, and African Americans are very skeptical. And you know why that's ironic? Because those are the two groups that started vaccines in the United States. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Isn't that, think about that. Is, so, 
So let me give you a little bit more details. Do you know where the concept of vaccines comes from? Africa. Yeah, in the Middle East. It's actually, it, it, came, it comes from Africa in the Middle East. And it was the observation is that, you know, there's a lot of nasty viruses and diseases out there. And people figured out, just through observation, that if you got um, a virus in a certain way, typically if you made a cut or a wound and put the virus, actually pus from the person who was infected, into the wound, rather than inhaling the virus, you would get less sick and you'd be protected from the future. So that, that was an observation that was made 500 years ago, 600 years ago, in Africa and the Middle East. And so people in Africa were typically getting vaccinated for smallpox, which is the worst of the viruses. Smallpox epidemic would kill 30% of the entire population in six weeks. And so people in Africa figured out that this is the way to protect the population from that. And so that, uh, that information came available to Europeans in the early 1700s. And one of the first clinical trials ever done was done at the Newgate Prison in Great Britain. And it was done because uh, somebody, it was royalty, was so worried about their kids dying from smallpox that they wanted to test this concept from the Middle East and Africa. And so they got permission from the king to take six prisoners and to create big cuts in their legs and to put the pus of, of a smallpox victim into that leg and see if they got sick. So they did that, they inoculated them, uh, and then they put these people, they were prisoners that were in there for life. They were given uh, the, the opportunity to be released from prison if they survived the experiment. And they then got put into rooms with smallpox victims to see if they got sick. And none of them got sick. Okay. So, so it, it, it actually worked. Okay, so. So a guy uh, named Cotton Mather, who can, was a, he was a, um, evangelical, um, he was in, uh, involved with you know, the, the Puritans, the people that came over, if you remember that, of course. And um, he had a, a slave called Onesimus, who was a very intelligent guy. And he was saying, like, what, tell me about like, what happened in Africa. So Onesimus uh, came over from Africa when he was 10 years old. He was vaccinated. He, he was inoculated. And, and Onesimus says, yeah, well, this is how we do it, this is why we do it. And so Count Mather said, listen, let, let's, um, let's work together on this. Can you help me do a project here in Massachusetts where we inoculate people and see what happens? And sure enough, uh, they knew that what was happening in, in Great Britain would eventually come to the colonies because there were ships going back and forth. And Count Mather worked with Onesimus, and they inoculated about 270 people in the Boston area. And they wanted to see what would happen when the smallpox eventually got there. And what happened is that the people who were inoculated had a likelihood of dying from smallpox of only 2%, whereas the people in the community that were not inoculated died at a rate of 16%. So it was actually the first important clinical trial ever done in the United States and one of the most important in the history of the world. And it was a collaboration between an African and an evangelical. Now, uh, Cotton Mather was kind of a bit of a controversial thing. Um, it was, it, 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 it had a very interesting relationship. So, um, Cotton Mather told Onesimus, well, I'll, I'll free you if you become Christian. And, and, and Onesimus says, no, nah, I'm not, you know, that's not my religion. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's one of the things that interesting. The other thing that was interesting about um, Cotton Mather was that you've heard of the Salem Witch Trials? Okay, so... He uh, was, the, was one of the attorneys for the Salem Witch Trials. 
and he convinced the jury that the testimony from a dream can be admitted into court. <laughs> yeah. So it's called spectral evidence. And so Katnada said, well, you know, people don't have any have dreams for no reason. So, you know, there's got to be some truth to that. So you know, I forget the exact number, but, you know, more than a dozen young women were executed. It was like 16 or 18. Were executed based on the dreams of people. <laughs> and so I was doing progressive. So, um, so Kant Mather was the son of a fellow named Increase Mather, who was president of Harvard College, one of the early presidents. And Kant Mather tried to become president of Harvard College, but they wouldn't let him because of his you know, uneven background. But we have to give him a hand for getting together with Nesimus and coming up with this concept. So really, really cool. So if you have friends out there that are either African-American or evangelical, they said, yeah, hey, we're the ones that started this whole thing. <laughs> All right, so how are vaccines made? Here you can see that uh, the old, and this is all the old school stuff, that the old, first you had to grow a virus, and then uh, you could grow the, the, again, we talked about the fact that viruses need a cell, so you typically grow them in eggs, um, often from chicken embryos. So that is easy. So actually, uh, we did some studies that looked at uh, vaccines that were made from viruses that were grown in tobacco leaf. So you can do that as well. And so once you get that, you have to get the antigens or the virus that's going to trigger the immune response. Okay. So as I mentioned, back in the old days, we just take an entire virus, kill it, and then make a vaccine out of it. Yeah, we purify it a little bit, but you're basically throwing a whole, whole virus in there. But nowadays, you can use just pieces of it. We have the technology that you can take a piece of the virus rather than a whole box. And then is a very extensive process of purifying this. As you can imagine, if, you have a, if you're growing a virus in, a, in an egg, there's a lot of stuff in there you've got to get rid of to get to, the, to the, just the pure antigen. So they go through this series of purification processes over and over and over and over and over again. Could be 100, could be 500. And even then, there's a possibility of impurities because it's hard to get every little thing out. So the older school vaccines were more likely to cause an immune reaction that's an allergy that's not related to the antigen, but related to a contaminant. Because the viruses were actually grown in something that could be a contaminant. So for example, if you had an egg allergy, and you had a virus, you had a vaccine that was grown in eggs, then there could be some egg protein that would cause an allergic reaction. We don't have that anymore with the messenger RNA stuff. You know why? Because it's all made from scratch in test tubes using basic chemicals. So what if, yes? I have another question. Yes. Um, when you said uh, reactions and stuff, it's a thing now I heard on Channel 4 where, you, like, you take the flu and pneumonia shot together. They say if you take the COVID vaccine and the flu shot together, it could, you know, after a while, give you a stroke. Did you hear that? Give you a stroke? Yes. You're more prone yeah, I'd like to, to see who uh, said that. <laughs> it was on it Channel 4 a couple of days ago. Steve yeah, okay, so this is what happens. Uh, Steve Nissen is a, he's a cardiologist from, um, fr from Cleveland Clinic who I've known for many, many years, and I've published uh, more than one paper with him. <laughs> anyway, so what happens is this, is that uh, when we get information from, the, uh, from surveillance, you're seeing hundreds of thousands or millions and millions and millions and millions of case reports. And if there's a case report that said somebody happened to get a flu and a COVID vaccine at the same time, uh, what happened? So 
that, that's what's called an epidemiological observation, which quite frankly may or may not be true. And I have to, I have to study it more carefully because this is the first time I'm hearing it. But um, having said that, um, there may be some reports of that. But the beauty is, is that we're now looking at it critically in, in research trials. We're doing one right now. We actually have a research trial that combines the COVID and the flu vaccine in the same vaccine. Now, the problem with what you're referring to is that if you have different vaccines that you're giving at the same time, some of the other ingredients may not be compatible. So it may have nothing to do with the actual flu and the COVID protein, but it may have something to do with other elements of the vaccine. But there is no combined COVID flu vaccine available in the United States or any place right now, except right here in this office. So we're actually doing it. It's only, it's only available as an investigative product. So we are studying that concept, but I'm not actually familiar with the details, but I will look them up. But I can assure you that this is not major, because I would have heard of it if it was major. Okay. Uh, may involve the addition of an adjuvant uh, material. The other thing, I'm going to make one other point. This is actually the most important point. Okay. So if you hear about a side effect of anything, any kind of medicine, right, the first question you have to ask is what is that side effect versus the benefit? You should never, ever, ever make a judgment about something based on just the benefits or just the side effects. Okay? If somebody says that uh, this, this medicine, well, it's great medicine, I, I've, I've taken it, somebody gets on TV, I've taken it, and my energy level is 50% greater. You go and buy it? No, because that may, your energy may be 50% greater, but 50 people died from it. And, 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 no one, and no one necessarily uh, lived longer. Okay? Flip side, so you, somebody says, oh, you take this medicine, and don't take this medicine because 50 people died from it. Do you not take it? No, because you don't know how many people live longer. So, oh yeah, 50 people died from it, but 5,000 people live longer. Well, then that's a good, that's a good bet. So, that's, it's actually the biggest misconception in the media and in medicine is you never weigh the risk and the benefits. You can't, you can't possibly know what to do unless you weigh the risk versus the benefits. So something as simple as an aspirin. I can, aspirin causes GI bleeding. Uh, aspirin can cause horrible welts in your body. Uh, aspirin can cause anaphylaxis and your blood pressure will drop to nothing. Is that a reason not to take an aspirin? No, because aspirin also reduces heart attacks and reduces strokes. In some cases, it gets rid of your headache. So everything in medicine is risk versus benefit. So never, if anybody ever tells you either something is great, say, well, what's the downside? If they tell you something sucks, it's horrible, you say, what's the upside? If I do, you learn nothing more from this lecture, always ask what the opposite thing is. Because you can't make a good judgment without one versus the other. Yes. But would it also depend on the person, individual? Absolutely. That's the, that's the second. That's the second lesson of med evidence. You're giving the med evidence lesson here. So the first thing is risk versus benefit, and then it's customizing it to your circumstances. Correct. I mean, I might be allergic to something close to aspirin, so everybody's like, "Oh, you can't." Exactly. So if somebody tells you that aspirin is great, well, it may not be great for you for that for you for that exact reason. So you have to look at it for the overall population, risk versus benefit. And then you, okay? And the other thing about you is not only what you're sensitive to, but your personal risk. So 
You looks like you're over 30 years old. Okay. All right. So, so as I said, uh, some of the stuff for COVID in terms of uh, myocarditis or pericarditis, which can happen actually a little bit more in younger people than in older people. And the reason for that is because younger people have a more robust immune response. Okay. And because of that, they're going to have all those antibodies that are going to rush to the front. And sometimes the antibodies get a little bit overly aggressive and cause inflammation. Okay? And younger people are, are at much lower risk for serious complications of COVID. Yeah. Okay. So in that, in that situation, that's who am I? So if you're 30 years old and they come to me and they say, do I need a vaccine? I say, well, you're healthy. You're 30 years old. You do everything you want. You probably don't need one because if you get sick, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to be problems. But there's another thing. It's not only your individual risk, it's who you're going to expose. I was going to say, who you go okay. home with. Right, so if you're 30 years old and you live with an 80-year-old grandparent, well, then you want to get a vaccine. <laughs> okay, because your individual risk is really, really low, but you're making a big difference for somebody else. Okay, so all these things are factoring in how you make good medical decisions. And that's why we have med evidence, because when you get on Google, they say, this is good. This is bad. This is good. That's bad. Life isn't like that. Life is about risk versus benefits and who you are and who, you, and who you're surrounded with. And that's how you have to think about things. Thank you. Right. Good question, though. Thank you for that. All right. So, so now, okay, we got, we got the antigen. We're getting back to this. And then you have to make it so that you can give it to somebody. You can't give a bunch of protein to somebody. You've got to put it into something. There's got to be some fluid or something. So you create an adjuvant which is our medical term for something that enhances our ability to get into your body and also to get your immune system on board. Okay? So that, and there's also other chemicals that will allow it to have a longer shelf life and other things. So these are all the steps of making a vaccine. And then you gotta get it to the, you know, the places where they need to go. And that's the logistics going from a manufacturing facility to little bottles, to doctor's offices or public health places or wherever it goes is another big step of the process. It takes a lot of time and effort. It's, it's, it's more complex than you think. Logistics are, are actually important. All right, so that's how it's done traditionally. But as I mentioned, for the RNA stuff, is now we're not dealing with any cells. There are no cells at all. It's all built in test tubes. So we build an mRNA from basic components, and there's no impurities because everything starts pure. And so you build it based on the genetic code for that little piece of the protein that you want to identify that will trigger the immune system. So it, the, the technology is absolutely fabulous, and it can be very, very specific because we can map that, that sequence, and we can make sure it doesn't match any other sequence. So literally, there's a library now where that sequence can be matched against known sequences to see if that's a unique segment. And just doing the mathematics of it, you can get um, you know, anywhere between 20 and 30 base pairs of the messenger RNA and create something that's unique from everything else. Just going to nail that virus and nothing else. Like getting DNA from a tooth from somewhere exactly. long ago, you just need a piece of it. Exactly. Not the whole body. Yeah, you got it. You know that. All right. So what I like to tell people is that messenger RNA medicines are just a set of instructions. It's an email. And you know the other thing that's cool about it, for people that are worried about genetic code in their body, RNA is destroyed by your body within a day and a half. Yeah, so, so one of the, the challenges of RNA technology was that 
when you put it into a, into a biological system like an animal or a human, your body breaks it down really quickly because it's built to just be a messenger. It's like, a, it, what's it called, a Snapchat? 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 Snapchat, yeah. Where it's like that email that, that disintegrates after 20 seconds. That's what messenger RNA is in your body. So that we've actually had to use technologies to make it last a little bit longer so that it becomes useful. But your body is breaking down RNA all the time because it's just a short-term messenger. All right, so this is just reminding you of high school biology, college biology, is that DNA is in your nucleus. That's where all your genes are. RNA is in the cytoplasm. That's outside of the nucleus. And uh, RNA is responsible for taking the information from DNA and going to ribosomes and making a protein. So when, you, when people talk about, they're worried about RNA affecting their, their genetics, it can't affect your genetics, because the genetics are DNA in the cell nucleus, and RNA is all outside of the cell nucleus. There's nothing, has nothing to do with the DNA in the nucleus. So structurally, your body is built, it just can't happen. And this is, if you remember, these are the old Watson, uh, the Watson-Crick base pairs that when the, they discovered the uh, structure of DNA back in, in, in 1954 and won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for it. Hinted. So uh, again, this, this was a subtle lesson from high school biology or college biology, but I'll remind you, is that uh, RNA and DNA are made of what's called base pairs, which are these little mini amino acid proteins. And it's either an A, adenine, um, it's the thymine, or those are not exactly what, uh, I'm not pronouncing exactly right, I'll remember in a second. But anyhow, there, there's basically four base pairs, A, T, G, C, for DNA. And for RNA, it's A, G, U, C. So for RNA, it's uh, U instead of a T. And U is for uracil. Okay. All right, so this is, this is the answer to my question. So the reason we're excited about this is because uh, this, these two scientists won the Nobel Prize in medicine on October 2nd for discoveries that led to the RNA vaccines. And this is uh, Dr. Drew Weissman, who's an immunologist. He actually, um, taking his career, he's, he is a professor at the, at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he... Um, uh, he was at the NIH, he actually worked with uh, uh, Dr. Fauci at the NIH for a while. Uh, he went to medical school and got his uh, MD-PhD at Boston University, and he went to college with me. So we actually graduated together, I've known him since I'm 18 years old, and we took lots of classes together in college. So we're very proud of him that he won the Nobel Prize. And this is uh, uh, Carolina Kat Carico, Catalina Carico, who is a uh, Hungarian biochemist who escaped communist Hungary at the time with all of her worldly possessions in a teddy bear. So she, she had a two-year-old child that had like about $900 and some jewelry to their name and they hid it inside of a teddy bear to smuggle it out of Hungary because otherwise it would have been confiscated. And so she got to the United States with that and uh, she met Dr. Weissman at a copy machine and she started telling him about what she had learned about synthesizing RNA, and he was working on an HIV vaccine then. And he said, yeah, we've been wondering about RNA, but we can't make it stable. 
and they got together and they figured out how to make RNA stable for a vaccine. And because of that breakthrough, they won the Nobel Prize on October 2nd. So that's a pretty cool story. They were excited that, uh, yeah, I obviously has some uh, personal satisfaction for me since I've known Drew since I'm 18. We're not good friends, but, but we did actually take a lot of class together, including um, we took a class together when I was a sophomore in college on molecular biology. And the crazy thing is that the professor won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in, in 2017 for breakthroughs understanding circadian rhythms, genetic, the genetic basis of circadian rhythms. So, uh, kind of interesting, yeah. at least I find so. All right, so there's a couple other things that, that you should be aware of when we talk about vaccines. So, the, uh, something called balance. Balance is really, it says here, means power. It's the number of strains targeted. And that, that's the key thing, is that when you go get your flu vaccine, that you go to um, whatever your pharmacy is, and say, I want a flu vaccine, ask them, is it quadrivalent? It should be. Now, sometimes they'll try to give you a, a cheap one, or one that, because you know, a lot of people, they run out of these vaccines, so they try to push off the, the, the less effective ones. But quadrivalent means, quad is four, it means that it's coding for four different strains. That's what people are six day, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and others too. Yeah. Oh, the young people? They yeah, they can get it. Oh, yeah. no, I heard it was only... Well, they may, they may be rationing it. Yeah, that's... For that, for that reason, but there's no reason why a younger person can get it. Check out their pharmacies, because some might say they don't have it, and others may have it. Yeah. And then uh, an epitope is another thing that you probably won't hear about, and it gets a little thing <coughs> but it's actually the number of sequences in a virus that are being targeted. And so, yeah, it's over. So if you ever hear that word, that's what it means. So this is the number of strains, that's the number of sequences. All right, and then we have, um, yeah, so this gets into what we're doing here now. So as I mentioned, as we speak, we are working with Moderna on a product that has both a flu and a COVID vaccine together. Okay? And we think that this will be eventually how the whole the whole system works. And the reason for that is because it's just going to be more convenient for people. So uh, as you know, you have childhood vaccines that combine a lot of different things together. And you know, instead of having to come in three or four or five times, kids get all in one shot. And the same thing is going to happen for adults. Uh, more likely than not, a yearly vaccine for COVID, flu, and then eventually RSV. Those are the three nasty viruses that that lead to hospitalizations and problems for older people. And eventually they'll all be in the same vaccine. So we have, <clears throat> under investigation here, <clears throat> as we speak, the combination flu COVID. And we're really excited about that. We also think that um, this is ultimately gonna be the standard because it's less costly. Giving one shot versus coming back and giving multiple shots is gonna be better. And um, it's gonna be cheaper. I'm sorry? Less pain. Yeah, less pain. There you go. Exactly. You got it. All right. And yeah, so uh, what's going to happen in the future? So we're going to have a, I believe, as I mentioned, we're going to see faster and faster turnaround time. So the way flu vaccines have worked historically is that um, experts would slaughter pigs in China to kind of figure out what strains of virus were more likely to infect humans two years down the road. 
but you won't have to do that anymore because um, with the newer technologies, when people start getting sick, the first people getting sick will send their samples to a lab, and in three days you'll know the genetics of that virus. Three days. And then within three days, then you send it to one of the companies that builds these RNA vaccines, and they'll have, um, they'll have a target um, vaccine within two weeks. And then uh, the, the testing part will take longer, but that'll get shorter and shorter as we get more and more confidence in the way this thing works. So if COVID were to hit again, we would have a vaccine in four or five months. And eventually it could be as short as two months from identifying a virus having a vaccine. You'll already know some of the shortcuts. Yeah, all the, yep, exactly, that's right. So that, that's, that's the future. And then um, we're also gonna be able to make these that are really, really targeted just to the most pathological viruses and the, and the parts of the virus that are most likely to elicit the best immune response, the most specific immune response, so that we have the lowest possible dose and the lowest possible side effects. And again, clinical research is going to be a key part of this, because in order to do these breakthroughs, we have people like you that are incredibly helpful. Who here has been involved in one of our vaccine studies before? Anyone? One of our vaccine studies before. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And it's tremendous that you're doing that. So just for everybody else, we've had about, oh, between the flu, COVID, and RSV, we've had probably about 2,000 people in Northeast Florida participate in these studies. All doing well, thank God, and uh, hopefully protected against these nasty diseases. So it's, it's really remarkable, and we've been a major contributor to that uh, internationally. So Jacksonville has become an area that's known for this type of work because of uh, what you guys are doing. So thank you for that. Thanks for joining the MedEvidence Podcast. To learn more, head over to medevidence.com or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform.